Inside Podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to episode 14, Norse Code. In this episode, and probably the next few actually, we're going to take a look at one of the most interesting and influential groups of people to have come down to us through the myths of history, the Scandinavians. They are one of my favorites because, when you think about it, there isn't much in our modern world that doesn't tie in, at least somehow, to their culture and history. It's all over the place. When we call our sports teams Vikings, we call back to a very specific group of fierce and powerful Scandinavians, and same with the Viking space program back in the 1970s, though with that, Mission Command was probably trying to tap into the more uh, adventure and explorer side of their character. The Bluetooth software that we use all over the place is named after a Danish king called Harold Bluetooth, who may or may not have had an actual Bluetooth. J.R.R. Tolkien loved Scandinavian culture so much so that he incorporated elements of it into the Lord of the Rings legendarium and was known to dress up as an Anglo-Saxon warrior complete with battle axe to teach classes or chase colleagues down the street, and that's totally true. Tolkien worked extensively with the Scandinavian epics like Beowulf, Colervo, and the legends associated with the hero Sigurd in Norse mythology. And a parody of the tale of Sigurd and Brunhilde was done in the old 1957 Bugs Bunny cartoon What's Opera Doc, where Bugs and Elmer Fudd feud in the manner of Richard Wagner's operas, which borrowed heavily from the epic sagas. You know that cartoon, right? Elmer sings, Kill the Wabbit, Kill the Wabbit, Kill the Wabbit, and Bugs rides in dressed as Brunhilde the Valkyrie. It's a classic. Norse mythology can be found in the great tales, certainly, and the great stories, sure, but also in our literal everyday lives. Tuesday gets its name from the North god Tyr, the god associated with combat who lost his hand when the monstrous wolf Fenrir was bound by the gods. Tyr's day be- becomes Tuesday. Wednesday gets its name from Wotan, an old English pronunciation of Odin's name. Odin, of course, was the Allfather and the supreme god in Norse mythology who gave up an eye to gain vast wisdom and was associated with war, death, poetry, and wisdom. Wotan's day turned into Wednesday. Thursday is easy, since it gets its name from Thor, the Norse god of thunder, lightning, strength, and storms. Unlike the Marvel depictions of him in the comics and movies, the mythological Thor was actually described as sporting a big red beard and red hair. And he also wasn't the brother of Loki. Thor's day turned into Thursday. Friday gets its name from the Norse goddess Frigg. She is the wife of Odin and is usually associated with foresight and wisdom. She is also the mother of Baldur, the god whose death would eventually lead to the events of Ragnarok, the end of the world in that mythos. Frigg's day became Friday. Now in this episode, I want to kind of set the stage for an examination of the Scandinavians by diving into a little bit of their mythology, how it works, and how it has remained in our memory. To do that, I'm going to tell a couple of myths that come down to us from Norse mythology, so get ready for that. Most of the myths that we have come from the writings of Snorri Sturluson, who lived in the 1200s in Iceland and wrote the book The Prose Edda. But before we get into that, let's talk about Odin for a second. As I said, Odin was the Allfather and the supreme god of the Norse pantheon, and if you want to get a good mental image of what he looked like, just picture Gandalf the Grey from The Lord of the Rings, with only one eye. J.R.R. Tolkien referred to Gandalf as an Odinic wanderer, referring to Odin's most famous disguise as a wandering old man with a staff. Ring any bells? 
Odin carried a spear named Gungnir, which was so well made that it would always strike its target no matter who threw it. He also rode a great eight-legged horse named Sleipnir, which was one of Loki's offspring. Odin also has an obsession with gaining wisdom and knowledge. Going so far as to sacrifice an eye in order to drink from the well of Aurur, which granted him knowledge about everything. At one point, he sacrificed himself to himself by hanging from a tree for nine days, which granted him knowledge of the sacred runes, the characters that were thought to contain the secrets of the universe. Two ravens named Hugin, meaning thought, and Munin, meaning memory, fly to him each day to tell him about what is going on in the world. And fun fact, in 2012's Marvel Avengers movie, you can quickly see these two ravens in the scene where Loki and Thor are talking right before Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor fight. Thor says, A throne would suit you ill. Then there's a wide shot, and you can see the ravens fly across the foreground accompanied by a raven's cawing. They can be a little hard to see, but it's at the 46 minute and 17 second mark on Disney Plus if you're interested in seeing them. Odin was a god of war, but also of poetry, concerned with wisdom and knowledge, but not justice and fairness. He is one of the only Norse gods to regularly commune with humans. According to NorseMythology.org, his name can be translated as Master of Ecstasy, and this can be seen with his close associations with the dreaded Viking berserkers, warriors who had worked themselves up into a battle frenzy and enter battle naked and howling in animal fury. Odin wasn't so much concerned with the why behind a conflict as he was with the manner in which the conflict was resolved in battle. Odin was associated with cunning and magic, sure, and reserved only the best of the best warriors for his halls at Valhalla. Finally, Odin speaks only in poems, an ability highly prized in Norse myths. He stole the meat of poetry and handed it out to whoever he thought was worthy enough to drink it and be able to speak in rhymes. During the events of Ragnarok, Odin will be killed and eaten by the monstrous wolf Fenrir. Now this is just scratching the surface of who the Allfather was in the myths, but it is enough of a start to get us going. What follows is one version of the Norse creation myth. As with most mythologies, the bards or myth-tellers had their own versions of what happened and were really only concerned with the big picture of the story. So if you've heard something slightly different than what I'm about to say, that's why. Norse mythology starts, as many mythologies do, with violence. The story goes that at the very beginning of things, there was the void, and it was empty and boring. Muspelheim then appeared, and it was a hot, flaming world guarded by a giant named Surt, or also known as Surtur, who had a flaming sword. Think of the opening of the movie Thor Ragnarok, and you get the idea. Next came Niflheim, the cold underworld with foamy rivers made of venom. These rivers eventually turned to ice, and the fog that came off the ice eventually filled the entire realm. In between these two lands of extremes, the land was a comfortable temperature, and the giant Emir appeared or was formed from an interaction of the venom fog and the warm air from Muspelheim. The venom fog made Ymir wild, evil, and fierce. Oh, and he also had a cow called Odhomla, which came from the ice as well, and upon whose milk Ymir was able to drink. Emir was apparently a very sweaty guy. When he went to sleep, a frost giant and giantess emerged from the sweat of his left armpit. Those two newborn giants were, of course, evil, because wouldn't you be if you were born from armpit sweat? Anyway, 
Odhumla, the cow, had a habit of licking a particularly salty block of ice, and no mention of whether the ice was made from Ymir's sweat or not, but eventually Odhumla, the cow, licked away enough ice on the first day that a head of hair appeared in the ice. By the second day, a man's head was visible, and by the third day of constant cow licking, a man named Buri stepped out of the ice. Tall, strong, and handsome, Buri somehow had a son named Bor, who married Bestla, the daughter of one of the giants. Bor and Bestla had three sons, Odin, the oldest, Vili, and then V. Next thing you know, Odin and his brothers Vili and V killed the giant Ymir and used his body to make all of the things. So much blood poured out of Ymir that all the giants drowned except for two who were able to ride the blood waves in a hollowed-out tree trunk. Odin, Vili, and V took the body of Ymir into the void and started to make the world from it. Ymir's flesh became the earth, his blood the salt sea, his hair became the forests, and his bones became the mountains, rocks, and pebbles. Ymir's skull became the sky that was held up by a dwarf at each of the corners. And finally, Ymir's brains were flung into the sky to create storm clouds. Sparks from Muspelheim were turned into stars that were placed in the void, and the sun and moon were set up in the sky. And the reason that they both move so quickly in the sky is because both are being chased by wolves. When the wolves catch the moon and the sun, Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods, will be upon us. In case you were wondering, dwarves were originally maggots that lived in Ymir's flesh before being given the appearance of people and sentience. The dwarves lived underground in the lands of Nidavellir. The lands along the Salt Sea were named Jotunheim and were given to the giants who survived. The middle part was named Midgard, or Middle-earth, and was set aside for the humans. To help keep the giants of Jotunheim in Jotunheim, Odin and his brothers used Ymir's eyebrows to create a barrier between the two lands. While doing all of this, Odin created the first people, named Aska and Imbla, from an ash tree and an elm tree, respectively. Odin gave them life and a soul, while Vili gave them intelligence and the ability to touch things, and V rounded out the making by giving them speech, hearing, and sight. Vili and V mostly disappear from the Norse myths at this point, only showing up as needed to progress the story or to be in the background. Odin also fashioned the lands of Asgard, Midgard, and the Underworld, and connected them all with the great world tree Yggdrasil, which had roots in Asgard, the home of the gods, in Jotunheim, the home of the frost giants, and in Niflheim, the underworld land of ice. Ymir's body rests underneath the tree, and he's only mostly dead. Of course, there's a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead. As we know, mostly dead still means slightly alive, and that's the case with Ymir. The slightly alive part of his body sleeps under the roots of Yggdrasil and causes earthquakes when it moves. Also at the roots of Yggdrasil live the Norns, three maidens named Erd, Verdandi, and Skold, meaning the past, present, and future, respectively. Great names if you have a baby girl. These three ladies write the laws that govern all humans and determine the destiny of the gods and men. No one, not even Odin himself, can change the fate set down by the Norns at birth. And in this opening myth, there are a few things that help orient us in uncovering who the Norse were. First, the giants and the gods don't like each other. At all. Most of the myths that come down to us involve the conflict between the gods and the giants. The Norse gods don't really have anything to do with the humans of our world, Midgard, at all. 
Unlike the Greek pantheon, Odin is really the only one who meddles in human affairs, and then only sparingly with the heroes, like Sigurd, who we will get to later. Second, violence and death are the driving factors for the Norse pantheon. Odin and his brothers are barely introduced before they've killed and dismembered a giant. Third, the world was an unforgiving place. Rivers of venom, lands of ice and fire. Odin could have used Ymir's brain to make nice, pleasant, fluffy clouds, but no, we get storm clouds right out of the gate. A colossal wolf chases the sun while another one wants to nom on the moon, and a zombie giant causes earthquakes. Big no thanks for me. Fourth, thanks to the Norns, Ragnarok was inevitable. No man, no god, no creature could escape their fate. In some cases, the gods knew exactly what would happen to them in that final conflict and could do nothing to change or stop it. And fifth, the concept of Ragnarok is there from the very beginning of the story. The beginning is barely begun before the end comes into play. Ragnarok is known as the Twilight of the Gods and is the final war between the gods and all of the baddies that are present in Norse mythology. In this final war, the world ends, the sun is destroyed, and the gods themselves die. On the surface, this depiction of life is pretty depressing. Everyone dies and everything ends violently. In her book Mythology, author Edith Hamilton says, quote, This is the conception of life which underlies the Norse religion, as somber a conception as the mind of man has ever given birth to. The only sustaining support possible for the human spirit the one pure, unsullied good men can hope to attain is heroism, and heroism depends on lost causes. The hero can prove what he is only by dying. The power of good is shown not by triumphantly conquering evil, but by continuing to resist evil while facing certain defeat. End quote. She goes on to say, quote, Although the Norse hero was doomed if he did not yield, he could choose between yielding or dying. The decision was in his hands. Even more than that, a heroic death, like a martyr's death, is not a defeat, but a triumph. End quote. In essence, your fate has already been decreed, but you can choose to accept it or to fight against it. And in this we start to see something of the mindset which would eventually earn the Vikings their reputation for fierceness in battle. It was all in how you met your end. For the men, death on the battlefield, doing something heroic and worth remembering was the ultimate goal. Those who died valiantly could be chosen by the Valkyries, whose name means choosers of the slain, by the way, to go to the halls of Valhalla, where they would prepare for the final battle of Ragnarok. For the women, dying in childbirth was seen as a noble end, and they would be taken to Folkvangir, the hall of Frigg, Odin's wife. Men or women who died ignobly, or of old age, or of sickness, were taken to the underworld, known as Niflheim, which was presided over by Hel, spelled H-E-L, the daughter of Loki. According to some sources, the dead in the Norse Hel would exist either in a realm of punishment and torment from which there was no escape, or in a sort of non-tormented continuation of life. And while the two aren't functionally the same, the Norse land of Hel lent its name to the Christian Hel. So Ragnarok would come, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop it and the best way to be prepared for it was to die a glorious death so you could fight on the side of Odin and Thor in a losing battle. But how was Ragnarok supposed to start? Well, according to the story of the death of Baldur, it all started with a game. Baldur was the son of Odin and his wife Frigg, 
and he was the best. Everyone loved Balder because he was the wisest, kindest, and most gentle of all the gods and goddesses in Asgard. He was handsome and was such a good and noble god that he literally shone with a special brightness. He was the man, and everyone knew it, and they were okay with it. Well, one night, Balder had a dream. He dreamed that he was in Niflheim, the underworld, and that Hel, the keeper of the underworld and Odin's sister, hugged him, led him around, and showed him all of the gold and jewels that decorated her halls. When Balder woke up, he was terrified, as this dream was a portent showing his death. The other gods were horrified at the news. Balder couldn't die. He was too good and handsome. So they all decided to search the entire world for anything that could harm Balder and put a stop to it. Frigg, Balder's mother, volunteered to take on the job. The other gods were like, sure, we'll stay here, and Frigg set out into the world. She traveled from one end of the world to the other, going up to literally everything and making it swear a sacred oath that they would not harm Balder in any way. All the stones, the plants, the animals, the water, the poisons, the illness, the dirt, the fire, the earth, and the partridges in pear trees. Literally everything on earth loved Balder, and literally everything readily agreed not to harm him. Frigg went back and told everyone about how popular and loved Balder was, and the gods were like, yeah, makes sense, and gave a huge sigh of relief, and invented a new game to celebrate. That new game was called Throw Things at Balder and Watch Them Bounce Off of Him, and it was apparently lots and lots of fun. The gods threw boulders, weapons, arrows, sticks, chairs, and anything else they could get their hands on at him. Balder, for his part, just laughed and reveled in his newfound invincibility, telling everyone, Keep trying, I barely felt that. Good times, good times. Frigg's efforts were a success, and everyone was happy with his new arrangement. Everyone, that is, except Tom Hiddleston. I, I mean, Loki. Loki sat in the back of the room, hating Balder and his invincibility. This guy had it all. Handsome, glowing radiance, invulnerable skin, loving friends and family, wisdom, and kindness, and ugh. Loki hated him. So Loki did what Loki does and decided to do something about it. He disguised himself as an old woman and went to talk to Frigg. He asked her how Balder had become invincible, and Frigg told him how she had demanded a sacred oath from everything on Earth. Everything? Loki questioned in his best old lady voice. If it was my son, I would be concerned that I had missed something. But I guess you know that you didn't. Well, Frigg said, I did miss one thing. A little mistletoe bush grows west of here. It was such a young bush that I didn't ask an oath of it, because it seemed too little to hurt anyone. Smiling to himself, Loki walked out turned back into himself and found the mistletoe bush. He pulled it up and made a little dart out of it and brought it back to the place where the gods were playing whack a -balder. Loki walked in and saw everyone there still having fun. The only one not having fun was Hoder, Baldur's blind brother. Loki talked to him and found that Hoder was sad because he didn't have anything to throw at Baldur and he couldn't see him even if he did have something to throw. Loki said, I can help you with that. Take this little twig, and I'll guide your arm so that you can throw it at your brother. Ready? Aim? Throw! Together they threw the dart of mistletoe straight at Balder. It soared through the air, struck Balder in the chest, and went right through his heart. 
Balder fell to the ground dead. Everything stopped, and Loki beat a hasty retreat. But not before some of the gods turned and saw him leave. The gods took Balder's body down to the shore and laid everything out for him on a funeral ship. They put his prized possessions next to him on the ship and killed his horse and placed it on the ship also. Balder's wife was so full of grief that she also died and was laid next to him on the ship. The ship was then lit aflame and set out to float on the sea. Everyone was sad, but Odin alone knew that this event was the spark that would trigger the end of the world. The gods soon discovered that Hel, Loki's daughter and the keeper of the underworld of Niflheim, would be willing to release Balder from the underworld if, and only if, everything in the entire world would weep for the beloved god. Everything did, except for a single giantess living in a cave. She said, No one has ever seen me cry, and no one ever will. Balder means nothing to me, and if Hel has him in Niflheim, let her keep him. Nothing the gods did or said would convince her to change her mind. Balder would stay in the underworld. But at some point in all this, the gods realized that this giantess was none other than Loki in one of his many disguises. Loki was then captured and taken to a deep, dark cave and chained to the wall with unbreakable chains. A huge poisonous snake was placed over his head, and its venom dripped down onto Loki's face, causing him excruciating pain. Loki's son, Fenrir the wolf, found Loki's wife, Sigyn, who stands over her husband's face with a bowl to catch the snake venom. When she has to empty the bowl, the venom drops on Loki, and his agonized writhing causes earthquakes. Loki stayed there for many years until a large earthquake leveled the mountains and broke his chains. He went down to Niflheim, recruited his many monstrous children, and waged war against Asgard, triggering Ragnarok. Fire, earthquake, and flood consume everything. In the end, only two humans survive by hiding in the roots of Yggdrasil, the world tree. Baldur also is resurrected in the end and becomes the ruler of a better world. Like the creation story, there are a few things to note about Vikings and their culture from the story of the death of Baldur. Note that in the middle of all the partying with Baldur, there is a god, a deity, that is described as being blind. The other gods show the typical emotions that you would expect from people in your everyday non-mythological world. They show anger, sadness, surprise, and horror. They grieve, laugh, and show compassion and jealousy. They like to have fun, and they are certainly fallible. In many respects, the Norse gods were almost human in how they relate to each other and to the outside world around them. Frigg shows the extreme measures that a parent would go to in order to protect a child, a far cry from Hera in Greece trying to murder children of the humans or gods who displease her. They don't interact with humans near as much as their counterparts in Greek or Babylonian mythology. They are far more personable and human-like in their depictions. In her book Mythology, author Edith Hamilton says this about the difference between the Greeks and the Norse, saying, quote, No god of Greece could be heroic. All the Olympians were immortal and invincible. They could never feel the glow of courage. They could never defy danger. When they fought, they were sure of victory, and no harm could ever come near them. It was different in Asgard. The giants, whose city was Jotunheim, were the active and persistent enemies of the Aesir, as the gods were called, and they not only were in ever-present danger, but knew that in the end, complete victory was assured them. End quote. Next, take note of the arrangements for Baldur's body following his death. 
He is placed with all his possessions in a burning ship that is pushed out to sea. This type of burial will be key in our next episode, as the land version of this kind of burial is how we know a great deal about who the Vikings were and how they lived. We will definitely come back to this idea later. Finally note that this story is one of the only ones in which Balder plays any pivotal role. He is also the only deity to be resurrected after Ragnarok. Now, this story was written down by Snorri Sturluson in the 13th century, well after Christianity makes its way north to Iceland, and the part where Balder is resurrected seems to have been tacked on as an afterthought. There is a possibility that Snorri may have been trying to use this story to compare Balder to Christ as a bridge for the pagan Norsemen to reach Christianity, but that is purely speculation on my part, so take that with a grain of salt. Fortunately, it's not all doom and gloom in the Norse myths. There are some stories that are downright hilarious, like the time that Thor got dressed up in a wedding gown to get his hammer back. We'll get to that in a minute, but first, let's take a look at Thor. Chances are, when I say the name Thor, you think of Chris Hemsworth's depiction of the character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Blonde, small-bearded, and the brother of Tom Hiddleston's Loki, his hammer Mjolnir can be twirled to allow him to fly and comes back to his hand when he throws it. However, Mjolnir can only be lifted by anyone who is worthy, meaning, so far, only Thor himself, Vision, Captain America, Odin, his sister Hela, and the most worthy coat rack in Thor the Dark World can hold it. And while this character is certainly fun, Marvel's Thor really isn't anything like the mythological Thor. Mythological Thor is a redhead with a long, bushy red beard. He is the son of Odin, but Loki is not his brother, biological or adopted. Myth Thor doesn't fly by spinning his magic hammer. Instead, he rides in a chariot pulled by two goats named Tangrisnir and Tangjosnir, whom he eats each night for dinner, only for them to resurrect in the morning. He still carries Mjolnir in the myths, and Mjolnir does still come back to his hand after he throws it. But as we will see, there is no enchantment put on the hammer dictating who can and can't wield it. Thor does have to wear some magical iron gloves named Yarngripir in order to properly handle the weapon. There's also the belt Megingjord, which doubles his already great strength and was featured in a throwaway line in Spider-Man Homecoming. In the myths, Thor is the husband of the Norse earth goddess Sif, and in some cases the swastika is seen to represent Thor's lightning. During the events of Ragnarok, Thor will battle with one of Loki's monster kids, Jormungadr, the world serpent. Thor and Jormungadr will both kill each other after the world serpent sprays poison all over the sky and in the sea. But fortunately, the story I want to tell takes place well before all of that. This is the story of the time that Thor lost his hammer, and is known as the Lay of Thrym, and it is pretty hilarious. Here goes. One day, Thor woke up and reached over to grab his trusty hammer Mjolnir from off of his bedside table, but there was a small problem. The hammer wasn't there. He got up and looked all over the place, but the magic hammer was nowhere to be found. He pulled his beard and ran his hands through his hair in frustration. This wasn't good. That hammer was one of the only things that prevented the giants from attacking Asgard. In desperation, Thor turned to Loki for help. Someone has stolen Mjolnir, my magic hammer, Thor said. No one in Asgard or Midgard has seen it or knows what happened to it. 
Whoever took my hammer is a deviously crafty one. Loki was apparently feeling helpful for once and said, You must be truly desperate to come to me for help. Come to Freya's palace with me, and we will see what can be done. The two go over to Freya's palace, where Loki asks to borrow her falcon feather cloak, which allows its wearer to fly. Loki wants to use it to fly over to Jotunheim, the land of the giants, because only a giant could have taken Thor's hammer. It must be over there somewhere. Freya replies good-naturedly, Of course, Loki. I would give you my cloak even if it were made of pure silver or gold. Take it and good luck in your search. Loki graciously accepted the cloak and, putting it on, flew over to Jotunheim. How in the world would he ever figure out where the hammer was or who had taken it? Jotunheim was a vast land, after all, filled with many giants. There's no telling where the hammer was by now. Upon arriving in giant land, Loki saw the frost giant Thrym at work in the hall of the giants, brushing the hair of his horses and making gold collars for his dogs. Thrym looked up, spotted Loki, and said, Hello there, Loki. How are you? How are the gods? How are the elves? And what brings you to Jotunheim? Loki answered, Well, the gods and elves aren't too happy. Thor's hammer Mjolnir is missing. Did you steal it and hide it? Well, yeah, Thrym replied. I stole it and buried it eight miles deep in the earth, and I won't give it back until Freya agrees to be my wife. Well, that was easy. Loki flew back to Asgard, where he met Thor and told him everything that happened. They both went to Freya and asked her to put on a wedding veil so that she could go be Thrym's wife. To the surprise of absolutely no one, Freya flatly refused. She was so angry that the necklace she wore split in pieces and fell, broken on the floor. The gods would think I was a disloyal wife if I went and married another. And besides, I would certainly never marry a frost giant. At this point, Thor realized that Freya had a point, and asked Odin to call all of the gods together, so they could all try to come up with a plan. Mjolnir's theft was no minor matter. The hammer had to be recovered. After much deliberation, Heimdall came up with a plan worthy of Loki himself. He stood up and said, Thor himself is the answer to this problem. We must dress Thor as Thrym's bride. Let's put Freya's necklace on him and put jeweled brooches on his chest. Hide his legs behind a long dress, put women's keys on his belt. Put a nice little hat on his red hair and hide his face behind the bridal veil, and no one will know the difference. It'll be great. Thor wasn't convinced. You just want to dress me like that so you can all laugh at me. I'm not sure that your plan will accomplish anything else. Loki, most likely absolutely loving this idea, defended Heimdall's plan. Hey, Thunderboy, hush up. We have to get your hammer back or the giants will invade. They would love to hang out in our palaces if we let them. Do you have a better idea? Thor did not have a better idea. So they dressed Thor up to look like a bride. Loki volunteered to go with the god of thunder dressed up as his handmaiden, and off the two went to Jotunheim in Thor's goat chariot that sounded like thunder and lightning. Time to go mess up some giants. Meanwhile, Thrym, the frost giant, eagerly waited for his new wife to arrive. He got the place all ready for the wedding and waited impatiently for Freya to get there. In the evening, Bride Thor and Bridesmaid Loki arrived, and the giants threw a great feast to celebrate the coming nuptials. Thor may have been dressed like a bride, but there was no way that he could hide his giant appetite. 
Thrym looked on lovestruck as Bride Thor proceeded to eat all of the little sweets that were usually given to the women, eight large salmon, and an entire ox. He washed all of that down with three barrels of mead. Thrym was impressed and asked aloud, Has there ever been a bride with such a great appetite? Or one who took such big mouthfuls of food or as big gulps of mead? Bridesmaid Loki slyly replied that Freya had not eaten for eight days in anticipation of being married. Overcome with love, Thrym lifted Bride Thor's veil in order to steal a kiss. Upon seeing Thor's eyes, he quickly leaped back the length of the feasting hall. Look how fierce her eyes are! A dangerous fire burns in her eyes. Oh, Freya has been so excited to be married that she has stayed awake for eight days straight in excitement, Loki lied. Apparently satisfied with this reasoning, and completely missing the ginormous red beard and mustache on his bride's face, Thrym called out to his giant buddies, My bride is totally legit. Go get Mjolnir, Thor's mighty hammer, and place it in my new wife's lap so that we can say our marriage vows. Thor's heart leapt with joy when his hammer was retrieved and put in his lap. He quickly grabbed his hammer and did what he was best at. He started bashing heads. He Thor smashed Thrym into the ground and killed all of the other giants in the hall one by one. And that is how he got his hammer back. This story is great for its simplicity. Thor and Loki all get a chance to do what they do best. Loki gets to be cunning and devious, while Thor gets to violently kill everything around him. Loki also gets to lean into his more good-natured side to help the gods rather than bring them harm or mischief for once. But the story also subverts our expectations a little bit by having supermanly Thor, god of thunder and storms, dressed in the most unmanly way possible by disguising himself as Freya, a beautiful goddess of fertility and love. Some believe that this story is one of the oldest poems in the Norse sagas. Others believe them to be younger and a kind of parody of the heathen gods by the Christian writers. Sort of a look how ridiculous your god is kind of thing. It should come as no surprise that Norse mythology is the way that it is. Myths are stories that people tell themselves to help make sense of the world around them. Or, as French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss says, quote, We are able, through scientific thinking, to achieve mastery over nature. Myth is unsuccessful in giving man more material power over the environment. However, it gives man, very importantly, the illusion that he can understand the universe, and that he does understand the universe, end quote. Norse myths are harsh and cold and violent. These myths are shaped by both the environment in which they are, were told and by the people who told them, but they also shaped, in turn, the values and customs of those people. As we will see, the Vikings were a violent people who left a lasting impression on the world, even though they were only on the world stage for a relatively short amount of time. Looking at their myths full of violence and the ever-present shadow of Ragnarok looming, it is small wonder that the Vikings would strike such fear into the hearts of their victims that they were alleged to have prayed, A furore normanorum libera nos domine. From the fury of the Norsemen, deliver us, O Lord. And that will do it for this episode of the History on the Side podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, suggestions, cries of outrage, or accusations of heresy, you can get in touch with me by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, through Facebook and Instagram by searching History on the Side, or by checking out www.historyontheside.com. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time in Norse Code Part 2.